Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 18. My name is Gumby. I'm Teresa. And we are in South Dakota. Um, It's a rainy, chilly day in August. (laughs) So we're actually in our van doing this podcast. Um, South Dakota makes me think of Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull and, you know, that time when uh, it's considered one of the last times of the, the indigenous people really having a chance of fighting the U.S. government and actually won a battle or two against the U.S. government um, on this land. And uh, yeah, as, a, as we go through South Dakota, I think of Mount Rushmore and the, the Sacred Black Hills, which, you know, was a big part of uh, what Crazy Horse and his people were, were protecting and defending, like the, the heart of their culture. Um, and how miners just started going in there and, you know, the U.S. government was saying, like, we want to protect your people from these miners. We can't stop them. And, you know, the, the the indigenous people are saying, well, if you got soldiers to protect us, why don't you stop the miners? But we know how that goes. And, you know, all these years later, what do we have? We have four big white faces chiseled into the side of Mount Rushmore. Um, we got Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, and Lincoln. And uh, for those of you wasting all your breath and time quibbling over politics, if we could just get the right party in office, everything would get better. Um, let, rem- let me remind you that those four big white faces on the Black Hills represent an independent, a Democrat, a Republican, and a progressive. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know of any one of those parties that are, you know, throwing a huge protest about what we did to the Black Hills, so... I really don't see where you're getting hope for these these uh, political parties from. But anyway, we're we're driving through and you know seeing all these signs about the native prairies and the plants that grew here. And you know what we've encountered? Pig shit. The smell of pig shit. Vast vast amounts of pig shit odor. And cornfields, you know, producing ethanol so we can make our gas, our failing society stretch just a little bit further. And wires strung everywhere. Um, we are, what's the town we're in right now? Uh, Chamberlain, South Dakota. Yeah, so Chamberlain's actually kind of pretty. We're on, on the edge of a lake, and it's where the hills really start, you know, the, the landscape starts changing. But it's been a long, long ugly trip until now. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the Missouri River. That's the Missouri River? Yeah. <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> so... The landscape Um, is changing. In case I didn't say, this is Upcycle Creations. And uh, so let's begin. Um, 
Teresa? Yes, darling. Please define upcycling for us. Pray tell, what is upcycling? Oh, boy, it sounds... This is like a setup in a classroom or something. Well, um, upcycling is where you take a material and you make something out of it that has more value than what the original material had. An example might be a plastic bag mat, where you have these plastic bags that are discarded. Um, sometimes they're put into a recycling bin. Sometimes they're floating in the wind um, and end up in trees and ditches and the ocean. And you make something useful out of it, like a mat, or if you're Gumby, something even more extraordinary, um, like a backpack. And it has more value than it did before. And you can contrast that with downcycling, which is where you take a material and you make something out of it that has less value than what you started with. And an example of that is actually has to do with recycling. Um, a lot of times our cans that we're putting in the recycle bin, they have different layers uh, that are made up of different metals. And when you melt them down, which of course causes pollution there and the transportation to take them to facilities to recycle the cans, um, you're then getting a lesser quality metal than what you started with because you have contamination of all the metals mixing together and you can't take the, the pure metals out. They're all mixed together so they end up making a lesser quality can or, or metal that maybe can only be used in a certain, um, in a certain way that's less valuable than what it started with. And that's upcycling and downcycling. <laughs> Yeah, and at first I was really confused what downcycling was. I tried to get Teresa to define that for me, and she was saying when something gets turned into from what it was before into something of lesser value. So we got into this whole debate about what value is. You know, is it an intrinsic thing? Is it something we attribute to something? For instance, uh, her first example was um, a tire. You know, that's on a car, and uh, you know, an example of downcycling might be it getting shredded for a playground. Um, but I, I wondered like, well, you know, isn't that, couldn't that be of greater value to a person who maybe, you know, doesn't own a car, but loves the playground and wants their kids protected and it's the soft rubbery surface. So, uh, That's true. yeah, so we were kind of debating on that, but now I understand a little bit better, you know, when we started, when she started helping me realize it had to do with recycling, you know, how like we have a certain amount of materials and everything. And then through the process of recycling, um, it gets downgraded. It's it's not going to last as long. It's not going to stretch as far. It's not going to work as well. Um, so, yeah. Um, a distinction I like to make is upcycling has to do with taking something that was made for a certain purpose. This is largely my own definition, I think, and um, repurposing it for something. Um, and we're talking about man-made materials. Um as we were preparing for this podcast and I was thinking about this, um, I realized that's an important distinction um, because the same thing is done with natural materials in a wilderness survival mindset. For instance, leaves, um, you know, they are made to photosynthesize, to feed the plants, and then they drop and they insulate the ground and then they rot and they, feed, they nourish the soil and replenish the soil. So you might say, well, isn't it kind of a form of upcycling to build a shelter where now I'm using those leaves for insulation for a shelter. They weren't necessarily designed for that or, 
Uh, you know, I don't want to get into the intelligent design debate, but that wasn't their primary purpose. Um, so that's one distinction I make. Man-made materials. That's what upcycling is. Finding uses. But it's the same mindset, the same creativity, the same improvisational skills. For instance, if I'm a good wilderness survivalist, I can go into the forest and whereas someone else might see a bone, I might see a possible knife, a possible fish spear, a possible part for a bow drill set. I might see any number of things. And that's the exact same mindset that's um, cultivated in the upcycler where someone sees trash, you know, just something to discard. The upcycler might see art, might see um, any number of useful things, which we'll talk much in much more detail uh, down the road a little bit. Um, yeah, so, uh, Teresa, I guess you're going to start us off talking about camp. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we both have a lot to say about this, so kick us off. Okay, so Gumby had asked me, I guess last year, if I wanted to maybe teach a summer camp. And we had talked before in our podcasts about how we were teaching all these summer camps or, you know, I was co-teaching or whatever. And my idea, the only idea I could really come up with at the time for my own uh, camp idea was upcycling. And so we called it upcycle creations because um, upcycle magic, they used the word magic too much in other camps. Actually, we didn't call it upcycle creations, right? Isn't that something that the school like? Yeah, so that was yeah. It it was upcycle magic, <laughs> because you said that the uh, the school that we were teaching at they liked the word magic, but <laughs> but in that week there were like four camps out of five that had already used the word magic in their titles, so we got relegated to uh, creations. But that's okay, because the reason why I wanted to do the camp um, was for the creative aspect and. I was, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but I was really influenced by my grandma who grew up during the Great Depression. She was actually born in 1915. Um, and I just saw her save everything, which we'll talk also about later, hoarding. Um, but she saved it with, with different purposes in mind than what people today might have. And I even impressed somebody... In, <laughs> in the bathroom. Oh my. The other day when I was washing dishes, That's illegal in some states. Yeah, I was washing dishes with this, um, piece of a, like a plastic bag netting from a, from like onions or something, that red netting. And this older lady was like, wow, I can't believe you're using that for washing your dishes. And I'm like, yep, my grandma taught me that, um, as well as many other uses, but getting back to camp, I just really wanted to like share with the kids and, and get their ideas for different, items that are considered trash and boy it just opened up like I was really hopeful after a lot of these activities that we did with the kids because kids have so many creative thoughts and and then somewhere along the line we all just get shuffled into the consumer box and instead of repurposing things or using our minds or you know pretending we're MacGyver we just go and buy something but just to have this week with the kids of seeing, you know, there there might be some hope there for the future generations. Of course, I'm not saying they'll remember all this, but maybe they will. Um, so, yeah, we had a lot of fun with trash and being creative with different pieces of garbage. And um, there was a specific game that Gumby had told me about where the kids all sit in a circle and he passes around, for example, like a stick. And you say, that's not a stick, that's a... And you might use it for something else, like a bow drill set. Or you might think of something really creative. Maybe it's for a, a, a part for a trapeze for your 
whatever, your hamster or something. I don't know. But the kids did a really great job with this game. And we, we passed around some things that they brought from home, like a plastic bottle. They brought a bunch of plastic bottles, um, some different containers that you would often either throw in the recycling or throw away in the garbage. And then that, again, that netting that we had from, uh, from the bag that I use as a little scrubby for my dishwashing. And we had, what, 12 kids? And we would go around the circle, including Gumby and I, that would be, what, 14? And uh, we would go around like two or three times with one object and no repeats. So that was really impressive to me. Yeah, I loved this camp. And uh, every year that goes by, I feel like I'm more of an ill-fitting part of this society. Uh, I'm more of an outlaw. And so there's, you know, this is a private school we're teaching at. Um and I kind of figured this is going to be my last year teaching. I love working with kids. I hope I get another opportunity down the road. But working at a private school in the North Carolina Piedmont summer, uh, brutal heat. Um, it just wasn't fitting with the direction I'm going anymore. So I figured if there's anything I want to say, I'd better say it this summer. Um, Teresa came up with this idea. They put it on their website. I was like, oh, man, this is an awesome idea. Like if if anything happened, you know, like... I want to make sure this idea happens. And it turns out Teresa and I had this big falling out, you know, over the spring. <laughs> and uh, she didn't want to work with me. She was like, you know, I'm done. Like, this camp, you know, screw it. And so I took it over. I just, I did not want this idea to fall by the wayside. It was a hugely terrific idea. Um, so then we uh, patched things up, decided we were going to work together. So it became more of a collaborative thing rather than me uh just kind of being her helper, although that is the role I took in the camp. But some highlights I wanted to share about this camp. I just thought this was an extraordinary camp. On the first morning, Monday morning, um, we take the kids for a walk, and we end up going to the dumpster to show them how to crawl in a dumpster. <laughs> this is a private school, mind you. I was like, screw it. I'm not holding anything back. You know, let's just do it. So I crawl in the dumpster, and we find all these, like, ornamental chopsticks and craft supplies that were thrown away by other camps. Mm -hmm. So right away, we're, like, pulling the curtain back, and, you know, there's the Wizard of Oz. Here's the stuff they're not supposed to see. Um, <laughs> so that was an awesome way to start a camp week. And, you know, we start brainstorming immediately. Like, well, what could we use this for? Do you see a value in this? Like, let's take it. Right. Um, and I tell the kids, I'm about to tell you guys something that most adults don't think I should talk to you about. So, of course, that's got, you know, the rapt attention right away. And I said, you guys don't have a future. If we keep doing what we're doing, um, there is no future for you guys. This world is in trouble. And we need to do something drastically different than what we're doing. Um, and that's on you guys. You know, I don't want to put a lot of weight on eight, and nine and ten year old shoulders. But let's face it, the adults have failed we're still failing. When I look at Facebook, when I look at the news, when I see the things people are talking about, we are doing the same old shit we didn't did before. And what's that quote about the mark of insanity being uh, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? <laughs> so, you know, I was just letting the kids have it straight. Like, you guys are going to have to do something drastically different if you're going to have a good world to live in. Um, so that kind of set the tone for the camp. Um, we went and showed them our van, you know, showed them examples of upcycling, just kind of opened it up and like, you know, here's how we've used milk crates, here's how we've used baling twine. Um, and later in the week, God, we did so many things. There was the buddy burners, which we'll talk about later, how to make little stoves out of tuna fish cans. 
um, dumpster diving food that we just kind of accidentally brought in. We just wanted to rinse it off. And while it was drying, some of the girls asked if they could start making juice and mashed potatoes and stuff. And then they wanted to cook on their buddy burners they just made. And they made this mulligan stew, which is a, a hobo thing. You know, the hobos used to do this mulligan stew. Hobos would show up at the, the jungle, the camp. Each one of them would have a little bit of food, but nothing too exciting by itself. But if they mixed it together into what they called a mulligan stew, suddenly they got this great thing to share <laughs> and bring a community get together. So we did that. Um, Sitting on the five-gallon buckets around the uh, hobo stove and the buddy burners. Yeah, and I was playing my guitar. It was a, It definitely felt like a little hobo community, a little, little jungle <laughs> out there. And at the end of the week, you know, we just wanted to keep it up of like, let's not pull any punches. So at the end of the week, we're talking about Greta Thunberg and, uh, you know, and we're telling the kids, you guys have power. You might feel powerless when you hear all this bad stuff. And I want to let you know you do have power. Greta encouraged people to boycott a day of school. Imagine if everybody boycotted school completely. I mean, the colleges, the high schools, the middle schools, the elementary schools, the private schools, the public schools, even the daycare. What if all kids just got together and decided, we don't have a future the way we're going. Until you guys can convince us that things are changing, that we're going to have a future, I don't see the point in another day of school. Imagine what that would do to our culture. It would come to a screeching halt. Um, and that's part of my frustration in general with all of us is we could stop this. So I wanted the kids to know you could stop this. You know, you could, you may choose not to. I'm not saying that's the path that you need to take, but don't forget that we have the power. So it was a terrific camp, um, just an awesome Upcycle Creations camp, and hence the name of this podcast, Upcycle Creations. So with that said, um, that by way of definition of what upcycling is, let's move on to trash. Um, <laughs> let's start talking some trash because... What we have are piles and piles of trash, and whether the conversation moves into recycling, moves into upcycling, moves into any number of directions, first let's address what this big pile of crap is that we even have to figure out what to do with in the first place. Whoa. I just did something. Is this still going? Mm-hmm. Okay. My bad. All right. So trash. Um something that was kind of a, uh, an obstacle for us was we had already moved into our van at that point. And while we are dumpster divers and, um, in the past we were able to kind of squirrel away interesting things, we couldn't really do that with the van. And even with my storage unit, there's only so much garbage I was willing to store for this camp. Um, so we asked on Facebook on a group that, is kind of like a, a swap group if they had any interesting garbage. Um, we also, <laughs> Gumby, like, climbed into these recycling bins, these giant recycling bins at a recycling center, and um, startled a couple people. Mm-hmm. But I assured them that we were doing something legitimate. Um, so what we ended up with was a classroom full of what most people would consider trash. Um, we had plastic bottles, aluminum cans of all different types, all different sorts of containers. We had clothes and, and fabric from an abandoned house. Um, 
we had broken electronics that I was planning on doing like a take it apart activity with the kids. And we even had stuff for a scavenger hunt in the woods where Gumby went around and, and hid a number of items. And then we split the kids up into like groups of three and with a five gallon bucket, which was one of the items they had to find. Um, they would go out into the woods and try to find this like garbage, like egg cartons and plastic jugs and stuff like that. Uh, so we had a, a classroom full of garbage and, the kids were kind of at the end of the week, I, I said, well, we got to do something with this stuff because it was once garbage. We, we want to put it back into the recycling bins or into the dumpster. And some of the kids wanted to take some stuff home. And I was like, that's fine. As long as you're doing something with it, you don't want to become a hoarder. Um, just keeping things just in case you have a use for it. That because I had seen that with my grandma, uh, when you would open up the cabinets in her kitchen, you would have an avalanche of Cool Whip containers fall down because who knows when you might need one. And they would be used for food storage or for cleaning the bathtub, you know, just having like a little tiny uh, container of water to rinse stuff. And I mean, that generation that grew up during the Depression, my grandma would, she would literally rinse off paper plates and dry them, like hang them up and dry them so that we could reuse them. And she did that with tin foil. And like I said, anything that she could save and squirrel away for a later use, um, you couldn't see her doorknobs in the house because they were covered in what she called gum bands, which the rest of us call rubber bands. But you never know. You might have a use for them. Um, So it was really hard for my grandma to let go of things. And I think, you know, even in today's culture, we have hoarders. Um, I know people that are just like, I don't know when, you know, if I might use that in the future, so I'm just going to hang on to it. So I'm not saying to hold on to things. And it's difficult when we have generations that came before us that we kind of inherit their stuff and we're not sure what to do with it. Um, I'll maybe talk a a little bit later or in another podcast, um, if we do a part two, about some ideas that if you are seeing yourself (laughs) maybe as a hoarder. I had a person contact me that she had a bunch of cassette tapes and she really couldn't part with them because she knew they would just end up in a landfill. So she's just holding onto these cassette tapes. And okay, I also had cassette tapes. So I'll give you an idea of what you might be able to do with those. And it doesn't necessarily mean a project. Um, (laughs) And it doesn't necessarily mean the the landfill either. But yeah, I think um, hoarding had somewhat of a purpose, but we can strike a balance now that we've kind of seen what happens when you fill your house up with garbage. And when kids see things that are interesting and they're like, Ooh, I want that. You know, I tried to explain to them, you can take it home. It was garbage. It was something that someone was going to throw out, but make sure you do something with it. You don't just fill your room up with junk. So yeah, that's all I have to say about that. I'm chuckling at the idea of, uh, you listening to cassette tapes because uh, Teresa and I, when she was a little girl, she had these huge bangs. I mean, like little woodland creatures could like get out of the rain under her bangs. Oh my god! It was and, one uh, bang. It was one giant. It bang. was a bang. Yeah. And uh, she said she wanted to be a DJ, and uh, <laughs> so Teresa and I joke a lot about like, you know, I can just picture her with her little cassettes like. 
screw you, Mom, I'm going to my room. And then go on and, like, listen to her cassettes, like, okay, people, these are sounds of the 70s. Get ready for rock and roll. <laughs> and uh, that's the, the, the voice we use for little Teresa when we're joking about that, which sounds a lot like Cartman, but it's an awesome voice. <laughs> so anyway, oh back God. to trash. And I am talking trash. What do you know? Yeah. I am embodying the spirit. Mm. All right. So a little bit of the history of how we get this these piles of crap that we have to figure out what to do with. Um, you know, it's a long history, but let's just jump into 1924. This is when planned obsolescence became a thing. Um, it was already an idea that was used a little bit in the, apparently with bicycles, but it really made a big impact with the automotive industry. Um I'm going to hand this over to Teresa. Maybe she can remember the name of this guy. But it was in 1924. He was a CEO of General Motors, right? Oh, yeah, that guy. Alfred P. Sloan, I think. Alfred this was P. In, Sloan, yes. I think yes. this was after 1924 that he did it. Okay, well, apparently, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, 1924 is the, the, the year that I had this written down. But also there was 1932 with Bernard Corden. London. London. <laughs> I have atrocious writing. Yeah. So so we're actually very intelligent. Yeah. Um, but between 24 and 32, this planned obsolescence idea showed up in the automotive industry. And apparently Henry Ford, he was kind of a bastard himself, but to, to his credit, he did not like this idea. Planned obsolescence is the idea. And keep in mind, this is a time when the economy is hitting one big pitfall after the other. Apparently, you know, everybody hears about the Great Depression. Um, at the end of the 1800s, there were like three huge Great Depressions, just times when the, the stock market, the economy crashed, um, which ties in a lot to the history of the hobos, which we'll probably talk more about in other podcasts. But there were vast droves of people that had just been failed by the economy, that had no money, that were traveling around, looking for work, learning how to live without the government, without work, because they had to. They were forced into it um, right after the Civil War. Um, so this is happening. There's just, you know, the economy is not working. So around 1924, early thirties, planned obsolescence. And this guy Sloan, he preferred to call it dynamic obsolescence, Mm. but it's the premise of let's try to encourage the consumer to feel like they have to buy new stuff every year, stuff that they used to just like, it was good enough. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. No, no, no. But it is broke. As a matter of fact, let's start making it differently so it's likely to break. So, you know, when you're wondering, like, this just blew me away. I didn't know there was actually a plan behind this. It just kind of boggled my mind that there's so much cheap shit that breaks so easy. You know, for years I've been wondering, can't they make this better? The answer is hell yes. They can make it better. They used to make it better. Planned obsolescence. It will help the economy if consumers have to buy more stuff. If stuff breaks easier. That's how we start fixing the economy. Because not only do you have to buy more stuff, but now we have to hire more workers. So more people are going to work because they got to make this stuff. So on both ends of it, if all you're thinking about is dollar bills, great. Wow. What a genius solution. But if you're thinking about quality, if you're thinking about a finite amount of resources on this planet, if you're thinking about how if something breaks twice Whereas before, when it was better quality, in that same amount of time, you only needed one. But now you need three because it keeps breaking. What that means to the depletion of the Earth's resources. Keep in mind, this was 
what, let's see, 20s, 30, 40, 50, 60, like a good 40 years before the environmental movement, Rachel Carson, before people started really realizing that there was a finite amount of resources to go around. Um, So, you know, people embraced this idea, it spread, and it had a tremendous amount of impact on the economy until now. It's pretty much permeated all facets of our economy. Breakable, throwaway stuff. Um, let's see, what else do I have here? Well, we ran into a good example of this yesterday. I did. We're in a, we were in Minnesota. And in Minnesota, you can buy beer in a grocery store, but it's like just a very small section. So if you want like good beer, you got to go to a liquor store. So I went in there. And uh, I bought a bottle of wine. There was this guy doing like a little wine tasting thing. And usually I just go there and drink the free wine and don't buy any. But the first wine he gave me was like, oh, my God, that was good. Yes, I want a bottle of that. So I got the bottle, get in the van, and Teresa reminds me we don't have a corkscrew. Um, we'd run into this before in the mountains. We got a bottle of wine, went way out in the middle of nowhere. No corkscrew. <laughs> I had to be upcycled. Yeah, I had to take my uh, hobo stove apart with a little coat hanger and twist it and twist it and twist it into a corkscrew and it worked it was enough to pull the cork out even though it kind of butchered the cork but anyway so it's time to get a corkscrew i go in there and i ask what's the cheapest corkscrew i can get they've got a freaking corkscrew that was like just over a dollar that was made to like only open one cork they said it would probably break after one bottle of wine (laughs) bam planned obsolescence oh my god i mean think about that for a minute you know it's great if you're like trying to make money but if you're actually like trying to preserve a future where we still have a world um it's just like it puts the sucking the world dry on hyperdrive now we're just like I mean, we're like a Hoover vacuum sucking everything we can because things are breaking and like one use corks. Holy crap. And it looks like Teresa's dying to have something to say. So here you go. Oh, I just wanted to add that this this one time use corkscrew had to have been made in a factory. And I'm not saying the factory was dedicated to one time use corkscrews, but there had to be a process where they make a corkscrew that they plan that it's going to break after one use. They already know how to make corkscrews that last longer. But now this corkscrew was made after all of that to only be used once. That is, if that doesn't make you angry, I don't think you're alive. Like that is the most retardantest thing I have ever heard in my life, including that word I just made up. So can I... um? Move on. You're not done? Okay, here you go. Uh, One thing I wanted to add to that was, uh, you know, this planned obsolescence. Um, I was reading up on the Industrial Revolution a while back because I was really interested in Luddites. And it turns out the Luddites weren't the only people who were fighting the Industrial Revolution. There was a lot of groups. um, They were just one of many groups who were sabotaging these factories. Um, Luddites are generally considered to be against technology, but it wasn't technology per se they were against. It was the class hierarchy that went with it, that now you can just, you know, instead of there being a craftsman who could make a quality thing and get some compensation for like, maybe I make shoes and I'm a really good shoemaker and people know that I make shoes, they're unique. But now there's a factory and you just hire like, you know, a a number of people that are getting paid 
barely enough. I mean, like not living wages just to run these machines that are just cranking out lower quality shoes. So almost by accident, when you think about the repercussions of that, planned obsolescence was already in effect. Lower quality shoes put out by the machines. So when I, were, when I heard this idea of planned obsolescence, it made me think of part of the argument they had against this. You know, they were saying one of the things we're going to lose is craftsmanship. You know, this whole like being invested in your work, having a skill, because now you're just pushing buttons, you're turning cranks, you're working a machine. The machine does it. And the machine doesn't give a shit about the products it's cranking out. It's just, you know, it's just stuff that's like good enough. And so I feel like planned obsolescence was sort of like almost inevitable after the Industrial Revolution. It's like, all right, let's take this idea that's already happening, and now let's get really conscious about it. Let's kick it into overdrive. So, uh, okay, I'll hand it over to you now. I mean, there's just so much to talk about with that planned obsolescence um, idea that, I don't know, we might have to elaborate on that in a future podcast or something. I actually downloaded, there's a pamphlet that Bernard London um, submitted to the Oh gosh, I think the Library of Congress. So you can download it for free and check it out. I just started reading it before we're recording, um, but it was it's pretty interesting to start reading. So uh, moving on to plastic. Um, plastic, of course, I mean, talk about planned obsolescence. Most things plastic, you know when you buy it that it's going to break. Just plastic is horrible. There's There's good things about it, but I think it is far outweighed by the bad. Um, and it's a recent invention. Gumby has written down the 40s and 50s. And I think we watched this documentary called Unacceptable Levels. Around World War II is when I read that plastic really started coming on the scene in a big way. Yeah, and I think it was because during World War II they were developing all those chemicals for warfare and, like, for the military use. And um, so they were just like, hmm, what do we do with all this? Let's just start making plastic stuff. Um, And just to bring it home to you as far as where problems started happening. I mean, plastic was around in the 40s and 50s. I would say also keep in mind that this planned obsolescence has been around at this point when plastic's coming on the scene for a good 10 or 20 years. So put that in context, you know, already this idea of like, wow, this is kind of brilliant. Let's make shit cheaper so it'll break. It'll help the economy. And now, lo and behold, as if manna from heaven, here's plastic. (laughs) Oh, so I'm evidently, I am I am fascinated by bathrooms because most of us can say, yes, I use a bathroom, um, whether you like it or not. And we can relate things through the use of bathrooms because we are, we are kind of all on the same page. So think about the, um, the plastic soap pump. Now, bars of soap had been created in many ancient cultures from very simple, um, ingredients that were natural, but, oh, let's see in, um, let's see. The first liquid soap was patented in 1865. Now that just means that some guy decided that he, um, through a legal process was going to say, I own this idea. Um, but liquid soap was probably being used before that just by the very nature of soap and water and soap getting liquefied. Um, but liquid soap was patented in 1865. It wasn't until um, about 1979 that the first mass-marketed liquid soap pumps uh, came into existence. And this was um, because 
a guy who was in charge of this company called Minnetonka Corporation. We just passed through uh, Minnesota where this Minnetonka Corporation was based. Um, They were a small company, didn't have a lot of money, but they took a lot of risks. So they, in 1979, they bought up all the plastic pumps that were available and they decided they were going to come out with a product, a liquid soap um, in a pump and they'd call it soft soap. And I bet you've heard of this. You probably used to buy it if you still don't already. Um, so here we have an unnecessary plastic soap pump. Um, and then they decided the same Minnetonka corporation, they were really proud of themselves because that was an idea that nobody had really had before. There were these plastic pumps around, but people were just like, why do we need soap in a pump? Um, so then they decided, well, let's go further. We'll, we'll come up with our own toothpaste and we'll put that in a pump. Not the same design, of course. We'll have to have another factory make different types of plastic pumps for this, for the toothpaste. But it ended up that that idea wasn't as lucrative because there were already so many toothpaste manufacturers that they just then started adopting this pump. And I don't know if you remember, Gumby sort of remembers, I remember, it was ridiculous. It was like you have a toothpaste tube, which isn't great, but it works. And then you have this pump, which is completely unnecessary, hard plastic. I don't even know if it was recyclable back then. Probably nobody was recycling anyway. So just one corporation brought about so much waste unnecessarily. Um, And the guy that he was like the CEO, he said, well, I just thought, you know, you've got all these messy bars of soap in your bathroom. And what better way to like tidy up your bathroom than to have a soap pump? And I just want to smack him if he's still alive. Um, and also regarding bathrooms, we, we have these automated, uh, everything in the bathrooms now, especially, you know, if you go into a, any sort of a business, you've got the automated toilets that just flush endlessly for no reason, or they don't flush and you end up having to do something manually anyway. Um, they supposedly save water. I debate that. Um, we also have these automated dispensers for soap. And for paper towels that I know at least the paper towel dispensers run on D size, non rechargeable batteries. You might think that they're wired into the wall, which isn't great either with the use of electricity, but, um, nope, they're, they're using batteries that then get thrown into a landfill. So back in, I don't know, let's see. Gumby wrote down automated soap dispenser was patented in 1991. A little bit before that, there was the automated urinal. And about 16 years after the automated urinal, there were so many um, space-age bathrooms that had the flushing toilets and the automated water uh, where you just put your hand under there and hope that the water comes out. Um, A lot of this was supposed to be for economic reasons, like helping the business to save money. I don't know if it saves money. I think if you're using... uh, just a roll of paper towels versus having to buy batteries. I don't know. Um, it definitely has more of an environmental impact with the batteries and the plastic dispenser. Um, but something else that cropped up in my, in my research was the concept of germophobia. And we've talked about this before. And I feel like at least in, in part, even as a dumpster diver and a scavenger, I'm a germaphobe. I don't like touching things in the bathroom, but oh my God, like 
Do we really have to worry that much about touching a soap dispenser that we're going to then have it in an automated battery powered machine that we're so concerned about the potential for germs getting on the little lever for soap? I mean, whatever happened to just having a bar of soap? That was just too unsanitary. Now, are you tying automation into trash? Well, I'm tying it into wastefulness, definitely. So I think that's my rant with regard to plastic and um, just the unnecessary use of automation in the bathroom, just to, just to relate it. Because also, when you look at this concept of an automated bathroom, um, that doesn't, it, it doesn't phase us now. In fact, I, I know a lot of people that dislike the automated bathroom. But at one time, that was considered space age. And I just wonder, in 2019, we've got all these things coming out like smart cars. And in 20 years' time, what are we going to think about that? Are we going to think it's stupid? Are we going to think that it was a, a mistake to create that? We don't know. But we can look at history and see how we feel about the, the scientific creations that were considered good at the time. Okay, that's my tangent. I'm done. Styrofoam cups. <laughs> oh, shoot. Styrofoam cups. Okay, here's another example of... Um, oh, I it's unnecessary. God, I hate styrofoam. Um, if you look on a styrofoam package, you'll often see the recycle um, emblem. And you might, you might even see... I think it's like the recycling number six. And so people think that it's recyclable. It is. In a very few handful of facilities in the United States... Um, I looked it up one time. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's one in Arizona, like one. And I was looking this up when I was living in North Carolina. So they're not uh, prevalent places where you can go to recycle styrofoam. And by the way, they're not going to collect it for you. You have to take it to them and you don't get any money for it. They're just offering to burn it, which can't be good for the environment so that they can melt it down and do something with it, which is probably one of those examples of downcycling. Um, but I saw on this styrofoam cup, and this is, again, propaganda. There was a message that, thank you, Sherlock. See, our dog likes to sigh um, when he's exasperated. There was a message on the styrofoam cup that styrofoam produces less, less waste by weight than a paper cup. So a paper cup, even though most of the time you can just throw the paper cup into a compost and it's just going to biodegrade over time, they're saying that that is worse than styrofoam because styrofoam weighs less than the paper cup. And that just that just blew my mind that they even had to put that message on there. But it's it's these messages that you have to look out for because people go, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a really good idea. So, yeah, I hate styrofoam. So, yeah, all this adds up to this throwaway society we have. I mean, just sit on any park bench, uh, hang out anywhere where there's people in a trash can. And just to watch how often that trash can is used. Hell, take a walk down any any road that's at all habited, habitated by people and look on what's by the curbside. Um, everything is made to be thrown away. You know, there's a little bit of resistance to it. You know, you can go in a coffee shop sometimes and they'll have like the little cups that they can wash instead of their to-go cups. Um, there's these fixer fairs that we've gone to once that I think are really awesome um, around North Carolina, maybe other places. But you can take something that's broken and it's sort of like, uh, you know, people that are really into fixing stuff to seeing how it works. You can just go for free and uh, 
they'll help you look at your diagnose your appliance. I think we took a vacuum mm -hmm. and, and they couldn't fix it, this one. But we learned a lot because they take it apart and you can talk to the people as they're taking it apart, as they're troubleshooting, seeing how they can fix it because they're using this to learn, to become better engineers, better, you know, whatever. It's often college kids. Um, but yeah, that's a really neat thing that kind of um, you can put your energy into to oppose the throwaway society. And another thing is the scrap exchange. Um, that's a place that you can go and instead of, I think the worst thing is buying brand new stuff. You are feeding the worst part of consumerism when you go to a store and buy anything brand new. So anytime you can go to a thrift store, um, all of us know how to go to a thrift store and buy secondhand stuff. That is a step in the right direction. That's a step against this planned obsolescence crap. Um, and it is only a small step away. There's so much more to be done, but it is a step. So, uh. Yeah, just consider the impact of this throwaway society we live in. Because we do it to each other, too. Um, we never isolate these philosophies to the one thing that, like, we think we're applying it to. So we become throwaway people. Look at, uh, what is it, Tinder or that, that dating app? Yeah, Tinder. Where you just, like, you know, you shuffle people's picture, you know, like, nope, nope, nope. And I've, I've been on dating sites, you know, you meet somebody and like, oh, we don't agree on that. Uh, no, it's not going to work. I mean, we just throw away each other as well. And so we've got a huge population, more people on the earth than ever before. And so many of us lonely, you know, we've, we've been treated like throwaway people. And then we wonder why these shooters are freaking, freaking flipping out, not seeing the people around them as human and just like shooting anybody in anything. Um, I don't know. I feel like more of us could understand that if we would allow ourselves to than we let on. These people feel thrown away. Um, we're just a throwaway society, and it goes way beyond trash. Yeah, and um, God, I was going to mention the scrap exchange again. That's a store. It's an interesting idea that we have in Durham, North Carolina. And I think <laughs> I was talking about hoarding before. And when Gumby and I were moving out of our trailer into the van, I had to get rid of a lot of stuff. And I mentioned cassette tapes. Um, I had a bunch of stuff that I was just like, wow, I really hate to just throw this stuff away. Like, for example, stuffed animals. And I know that there's organizations that can distribute it to kids. But a lot of times they don't want old stuff. They want brand new stuff that's still in a package. So the Scrap Exchange is a place in Durham, North Carolina that they'll accept anything. I mean, they'll accept absolute crap. And the best part is if you're someone that has a hard time letting go, they'll sort through your stuff. You take it to them. You can even drive up, fill up a cart full of stuff and hand it over to them and drive away feeling like you did something good and they'll throw it away for you whether it's in the dumpster out back or if they decide, hey, this is of use and we can take it and put it in our store and sell it. And they often showcase things on their Facebook page just to keep people coming in and interested in um, in all their random crap that they have there. Uh, something else that I was also thinking about a throwaway society and when Gumby mentioned the fixer fair, when you start to take things apart and realize like all the intricate little pieces that make up a vacuum cleaner or a coffee maker or a printer, you start to wonder like, wow, like, I don't know how to make this stuff. Where does this come from? And what to all these factories that you have to have to make just this one product? Um, so I started, 
I started looking up for our camp, where things came from. And I found books in the library in the children's section. Uh, so yes, I, I checked out like 10 children's books on where, how things are made. And one example was like a guitar. Another example was soap. Another example was, um, oh gosh, I think, I think they, they made like a soccer ball or something, but in all of the books, they took for granted where the materials originated from. So for example, with a soccer ball, they're just like, okay, we've got this leather or, okay, we've got this rubber or, okay, we've got this wood for a guitar. Well, where the hell does it come from? And I think that's an important omission that the kids' books leave out the source because they're taking the animistic perspective out of all the things that we're making from the earth. So even though plastic doesn't, I mean, plastic is man-made, it came from something from the earth. It had to. We didn't just like make it out of something from space. So I just kind of, that struck me as something important that our kids aren't necessarily understanding where things come from. Even something as simple, and I think we'll talk about this later, something as simple as a ballpoint pen. I mean, we take it for granted. In fact, I just signed a receipt today uh, with a pen and it wasn't working. And the lady said, oh, there were like 10 for a dollar. So of course it's not going to work. Oh, there's that. What was it again? The planned obsolescence. So they're just making pens that just don't even work. Like you just buy them brand new and they don't work. But how do you even make a pen? I mean, I don't know. I don't even know how to make a pencil. I had to look it up because where did, I mean, like, it seems so simple, but how do you make one? So anyway, I just, I was, I don't know. I was flabbergasted when I started to look into that subject just to share with the kids that we take so much for granted. Yeah. And also a thing that I think is very important to consider with all these products we're buying is it represents an increasing dependence on civilization. And if that doesn't alarm you, um, you think more about what that actually means because that dependence is a helplessness, mm. a lack of autonomy. So in other words, say you know how to wash clothes. You know, you go down to a river. Maybe you use a washboard. You know, maybe it's a piece of technology that you can't make a washboard yourself, but it's one thing. You get kind of understand everything else that's involved. So if something did happen, if you lost your washboard, you wouldn't feel completely lost. You know, you'd be like, all right, damn, I missed that washboard. I'm going to have to get another one, but let's go down to the river and wash clothes anyway. You know, we'll, we'll rig something up. Mm-hmm. But the more advanced these products get, and, uh, and let's keep in mind also if they're the, the planned obsolescence, how much harder we have to work to keep buying new products because we don't even get to buy this damn thing and just have it for like a really long time. It's going to break. It takes a lot of maintenance. It's a, it's a high maintenance um, thing. It's like having a high maintenance girlfriend, as they say, you know, you can't, you can't go out and do this and that because she just like needs all your time. Hell, our washing machines, our appliances are the same damn way. Um, this helplessness, you know, now if all you've used is a washing machine and that breaks, you have no idea how to wash your freaking clothes. You know, you just feel like, oh, man, can I borrow, can I come over to your house and use your washing machine? <laughs> I mean, there might be a river right beside you. You know, it just doesn't dawn on you. The technique is lost. Mm-hmm. So within this culture, this throwaway culture that's eating the world alive, that's destroying the future, that's electing leaders that you might despise, 
you have no choice. You've got to follow them. You're helpless. You're an infant. You can't. It's not like the time of like, you know, the American Revolution, the Boston Tea Party, the the Luddites, you know, where they could like kind of fight civilization and have some chance of like surviving without it so they could make a stand. You 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 don't really can't make a real stand anymore because you become so freaking helpless by these appliances and these things that are just turning into trash and filling our landfills anyway. Um, Teresa brought up The Walking Dead. Um, there's a part in there in this last season that we both really liked where, uh, you know, it's jump forward in time and the gas has run out. So now the cars are kind of butchered and they're being pulled by horses and, I loved the part where they go into this museum and they're getting these old things that are in the museum. <laughs> you know, I don't know how much the creators of uh, The Walking Dead know about planned obsolescence or anything, but it's like they must have some sense of that because there's a recognition that the old shit is still working, mm-hmm. is still lasting. And so the survivors after the zombie apocalypse are turning away from this new shit that's just breaking. It's like falling apart. It's useless. All it is is litter crap laying around let's get the old shit that was built to last so uh i thought that was kind of a neat um part that planned obsolescence has kind of maybe inadvertently played in our our recent pop culture um is there anything you want to say about that before i move on Uh, i was just going to add thank you for bringing up the walking dead too because um in previous seasons as well they have uh, split into communities, so it kind of is getting boring for us to watch. But um, this one community, the Kingdom, was the one that really were, they were using horses a lot more than the other communities um, at first. And they started to have a need for blacksmiths for horseshoes and and also uh, weapons and other types of of uh, I don't know metalworking things. So if you think about we have people in our society today that are blacksmiths, but I don't know how to do that stuff. I wouldn't know the first thing about like how hot the fire has to be to melt down metal and what type of metal can be used and how do I form it? What tools do I need? But here these people are on the show and maybe there was one person that had a little bit of knowledge and they were able to teach others. So now, you know, that skill is coming back to life. And we just recently went through Amish country and seeing like the horse-drawn carriages and um, the the ways in which the Amish do their farming for the most part. Um, those are skills that have pretty much died in our society. So it's kind of sad, but like Gumby said, maybe, maybe we're going to turn around. Maybe there'll be a time when we're breaking into museums and getting all the old stuff that still works. Yeah, and of course, that's by our cultural standards, you know, the old stuff that still works as far as, uh, you know, our lineage in this culture um, has. But let's forget, let's not forget about the other side of that, too, which is like the indigenous cultures that didn't build stuff to last because they kept the craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't made to break. It was just made to be used and then given back to the earth, you know, just use it. And that's okay because when you need another one, it's right there. You don't have to build a factory. You don't have to move heaven and earth and redirect the rivers and harness the wind. You just use it. You go up to the tree and you ask for it and you borrow it for a while and then you give it back to the earth and it turns to nourishment. So, uh, yeah, I just want to contrast that because, you know, things lasting forever, I think is a big advantage over this throwaway crap that we've got now. But I also think that, uh, 
just using things and giving it back to the earth and keeping it as simple as possible is an advantage over things lasting forever. I like that. And kind of winding up our little spiel here about trash, um, Teresa likes to use the example of a pen, you know, talking about things taken for granted. So as she brought up, you know, just look at a pen. You got the cap, you got the plastic casing, you got the ink cartridge inside, you got the ink. You can't make any of this stuff. I mean, you, you can make ink. You can, like, you know, make it out of walnut husks, but you can't make the ink inside of a pen. Um, and we just take that for granted. It's one simple thing. You just see it, like, you know, discarded in a parking lot. We have, like, three or four pens in our van right now, all of them found, um, just because they're discarded. And this is a thing that took, like, I don't know if one factory makes an entire pen or if they have to get different pieces from different places, but it's a complicated structure. And the upcycler can look at a pen and, uh, you know, just like that game, that's not a pen. It's a, hell, take the casing of a pen. You can use that to, to blow on your fire, to stoke up your coals in your fire. Um, there's any a straw to get water in a hard place that it, you can't get it from. So even something as simple as a pen um, can definitely be a big part of upcycling. We're almost out of time for this, uh, this episode. We thought this might be a two-parter. <laughs> But let's see, with our last little bit of time, I will um, bring up the next segment we're going to start discussing, which is recycling. You know, we've talked about, we've defined upcycling. We've talked about trash, you know, kind of a brief history of like how we got to be in the state of just trash everywhere. Trash being a big problem, landfills getting full. Um, Apparently, we even send some of our trash over to China until recently where China has said like, you know, (laughs) screw that. We've got enough trash. You know, even though you're paying us, it's not worth it anymore. We've got no place to put it anymore. So it's this big open ended question. What do we do with all this freaking trash? Um, The big thing that got promoted was recycling, you know, and people were so excited about that. I remember in the 80s, like all the commercials and everything. just recycle, recycle, recycle. You go and there's recycle bins everywhere and people get really militant about that. Like, oh, if people would just recycle, things would be so much better. Oh, that guy over there, he, did you see him throw that glass bottle in the trash? He's killing the earth. If he would recycle like me, well, you know, things would just improve so quickly. That bastard, he probably votes Republican. I think you're doing me right there. Uh, well, no, you, you stand back this, <laughs> but anyway, so recycling, um, I, the only thing I'm going to say to kick this off, and we'll talk more about recycling in our next podcast is the propaganda of it. I feel like the big thing that recycling does is gives us the feeling that things are under control. Oh yeah, we heard something about there being a trash crisis, and it makes sense. It's hard to ignore. You know, I see the trash go go away in these little black bags, and the the truck picks it up, and it it goes somewhere. And I've heard the problem, like the landfills are filling up. So, oh, but here's recycling cans. There's people smarter than me that are fixing this. It ain't getting fixed, people. We're gonna start talking about recycling and all the problems with recycling. Um, in our next podcast, but this is propaganda. The main thing I think recycling does is to create the illusion that things are being addressed, things are being fixed. They are not being fixed. Mm -hmm. Um, It's made to give us this false sense of security in our leaders that they've got it under control. Um, We can keep doing things. We can keep doing things the way we're doing them. 
Yeah. Just keep consuming. That's not the problem. Keep buying stuff. You're you're actually a, a better patriot if you go out and buy shit because that helps the economy. You know, do it for America. Do it for your kids, for God's sakes. <laughs> They're going to need money. So it's just one more thing to keep us asleep, to keep us from getting alarmed enough to actually give a fuck and do something, something drastic, something that might actually fix things. Calm down. Go back to sleep. It's under control. Look at the pretty blue can. Look at the pretty blue can. <laughs> so I guess we'll wind it up right here. Um, if you have any questions or comments, please uh, contact us um, at our website, Escaping Society, one word lowercase, dot weebly, B as in... Um, and if you've never spelled, seen that spelled out, it has a lot of Bs in it. Dot mm. com escapingsociety.weebly.com. So we will see you next episode. Um, We've got a lot of stuff to share. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, we're going to have to figure out how to make this not a (laughs) three-parter. But uh, yeah, so take care. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye.